Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, non-binary folk of all ages, welcome back to Player Advantage. It's been a while. Uh, I don't know if you've heard the news, <laughs> but uh, it's scary outside. Um, and I, uh, while I was on lockdown, I was really depressed uh, and just didn't have the motivation to do anything. Uh, this podcast included, I didn't have the motivation to do anything worth talking about on this podcast. So I didn't. Uh, I, and that's why, uh, our last episode was in February and we're resuming this now in July. This week, we are going to talk about Ubisoft's terrible track record with female protagonists in their games and why that is. We're going to talk about racist team names being forced to change. And we're going to talk about, uh, Nintendo's mini direct the games that I'm excited for from that, and how people's reactions to that are predictably terrible. But first, we're going to talk about Avatar The Last Airbender. Earlier this summer, Avatar The Last Airbender uh, came back to Netflix. Uh, so I, like every other person in the world, uh, decided to rewatch it. That show still, for my money, is the best Western animated show of all time, which is ironic because I think that show was primarily animated in Korea. Um, but just for a show completely developed uh, and written um, stateside, I think that's my pick for the best ever. Because it's got so many layers, it's got so many moving parts, and it respects the intelligence of the viewers, despite the fact that the target audience for it at the time is like 11, 12 years old. Uh, I think it was a little younger than that when that show started. I want to say it was like 9 or 10. It is a show that is smart enough that an adult doesn't feel insulted by watching it, but is simple enough that a child can follow it and understand it and understand its themes and what it's doing. Uh, it's the only show I can think of that... How to put this? It's the only show I can think of that is so staunch in its morals and its message, but isn't driven primarily by it. Uh, where it is first and foremost driven by uh, its characters. Uh, it's driven primarily by Ang, yes, Ang's pacifism, Ang's uh, running away from his destiny a hundred years ago, and how that directly affects people now uh, and his sense of responsibility his sense of guilt uh, and all those feelings but it also is driven by Zuko who upon this rewatch I've kind of realized is Zuko is not an antagonist who switches sides Zuko is a secondary protagonist the entire show yes he only joins the group in the home stretch uh, like I didn't realize this uh, while I was watching it, the, you know, when I was younger. Zuko is not with them very long uh, because there's all that stuff of them hanging out in the Fire Nation making their way to do the invasion on the, uh, the day of the eclipse. That's the first 10 episodes or 12 episodes, I guess, of, the, uh, of book three. And then after that, because so much of the show, like, it, it gets confusing because of the way Netflix puts these episodes up. Uh, so much of that show is, from that point on, is two-parters, four-parters. 
uh, Zuko is not with them very long. Um, where he joins up uh, after uh, after the invasion. Uh, then there's uh, like the Boiling Rock, uh, the episode, um, or the, the Old Masters, which I think is a two-parter. The Boiling Rock is a two-parter. So he spends four episodes hanging out with Aang and Sokka, just alone. And then he gets the Southern Raiders, which is the episode of him hanging out with Katara. Um, then the Ember Island Players. Then the finale is four parts. Zuko is not with the group for most of the series. Um, but Zuko is the secondary pran- uh, protagonist of the show. Um, because Zhao is the real antagonist of book one. Like, even times where Zuko is presented as antagonistic towards the group, he is secondary to someone else. There's somebody who is a bigger threat to them. Zuko is the whole time the story is focused on Zuko as much as it is on Aang. It's just that Zuko's story and Zuko's journey requires him to be diametrically opposed to Aang uh, until he realizes his real destiny is to capture Aang. Um, Which is why I think the episode The Avatar and the Fire Lord is the best episode in the whole series. Like, that show's full of phenomenal episodes. It's got one really, really bad one uh, in The Great Divide, which is, that is a filler episode. You can skip it and nothing of value is lost. It never comes up again. It's, it's I think it's referenced in the Ember Island Players. Um, but like it's the worst episode in the entire series. Um, but it's, it's preceded and followed by two great episodes. Um, but the Avatar and the Fire Lord is probably the best episode in the whole show. Uh, because it's an episode where the story progresses very little. But you find out so much about the world and how that affects the story now. Because it is a story where you find out the, uh, the origin and backstory of Avatar Roku and his friendship turned uh, turned rivalry I guess you'd say with uh, Fire Lord Sozin who is Zuko's great grandfather uh, and you're just finding out they were friends and then Sozin kind of went nuts and became a fascist <laughs> and then you're finding this out through the lens of Aang and Zuko both respectively learning it Aang is learning it directly from Roku and Zuko is learning it from reading uh, reading these scrolls that are the the documented life of of Fire Lord Sozin and he's Zuko's looking into it because he got a letter from Iroh in jail that's like hey the your great grandfather's legacy will reveal your destiny and he reads the whole thing, and it's exactly what he knows. And then he goes to <laughs> Iroh, and he's like, hey, man, what the hell? This is all stuff I knew already. I, I knew that, you know, that my great-grandfather used the comet and took over the world and died peacefully in his sleep. And Iroh just looks at him and goes, hey, man, you know you have more than one great-grandfather, right? 
your dad's grandfather is Fire Lord Sozin. Your mother's was Avatar Roku. And that's the moment the light goes on in Zuko's head. Because Zuko, as a character, he spends... He spends two seasons, or he spends the whole first season chasing Aang. Because he feels that chasing Aang, capturing Aang, will restore his honor. And if he restores his honor, his father will welcome him home, and he'll be happy. Book two, he's kind of resigned himself to the idea that that's not going to happen. Uh, well, the, the second part of book two. I think the Zuko that we get at the beginning of book two is maybe my favorite version of Zuko. Uh, where he's like a, he's a wandering samurai. Like, he's a character out of a Kurosawa movie. It's so cool. He's so great. Um, but then after that, he and Iroh are hiding out in Ba Sing Se. It's doing their own thing. And that's when you get, like, kind of babyface Zuko for the first time, where he's trying to be happy. And then the episode before he turns on everyone again... He's the he appears to be the happiest he's ever been, but he still has that conflict in him, and Az, uh, Azula exploits that, and that leads to him in book three, where he's conflicted again. He's he's home. His father accepts him. His father wants him at his right hand during war meetings, and he's still so miserable. Um, there's that great episode. Uh, where he, Azula, Tylee, and May uh, go to the beach. And Zuko is miserable the whole episode. He's just angry at everything. He doesn't know why. He does not know why. He's just pissed. He's trying to be like cute with May and May's being May. And is just like, no, f- stop. I hate this. I don't want to be here. And that pisses him off. Azula is Azula about things and that pisses him off and he's just trying to figure out like why am I so miserable why am I so angry and he realizes at the end of the episode and this really foreshadows what's going to happen with him although I think uh, the whole series really foreshadows what's going to happen with Zuko um, he he he, Ty Lee, May, and Azula are sitting around a campfire and uh, they're asking him. I think Ty Lee asks him, who are you angry at? And he says, I'm angry at me. And he doesn't, he still hasn't figured out why he's angry at himself, but he knows that he is the person that he's angriest at. Uh, and it just kind of, you hang on that until the Avatar and the Fire Lord and then you get that great moment with Zuko and the Fire Lord uh, in... Day of Black Sun Part 2, where Zuko uh, Zuko tells him, straight up, I could kill you right now. I know I can. I know I could take you. Neither of us have our firebending. Uh, I've got these swords, and I know how to use them. I know that I can beat you. But that's not my destiny. It's the Avatar's destiny. I'm done trying to restore my lost honor. Because my honor comes from me. Like, it is Zuko arc completed. He realizes that his dad was never the person who was going to give him his missing honor, his lost honor. He couldn't restore it because he never could take it away from him. Zuko took it away from himself, and then Zuko gives it back to himself. 
And that's like the message in that and that moment is so phenomenal. Like it's so well done. Uh, like if you have ever watched Avatar, I think you should rewatch it. But I think specifically you should rewatch book three. And if you're going to rewatch the whole series, I say rewatch it from the beginning and focus really hard on Zuko because he is without a doubt the most interesting character in in the series and looking at it from the perspective of Zuko always having been uh, your backup protagonist or protagonist number two uh, that's it really really helps uh, the presentation of the series it really helped my enjoyment of the series and it's still the best it's still the best uh, speaking of shows that are pretty good uh, I watched the entirety, all five seasons, of She-Ra and the Princesses of Power. First of all, that show only started airing in 2018 and has five seasons. I don't know what they're doing at DreamWorks. But, wow, five seasons in two years is nuts. Uh, and I know it's different for, like, an animated show. But that's crazy that they are, like, able to put that out in that manner that quickly. That being said, uh, man, does that show use every episode phenomenally. It's, this might sound hyperbolic, um, but hyperbole is my whole thing. Um, for all of these shows that are reboots of stuff, uh, especially from like the 80s, I'm going to go out on a limb and say this is probably the best one. Um, it and then some of the, like the later Transformers stuff, like Transformers Animated is really good. But, like, it's up there. It's it's really well made, and it knows what it's about. Um, and you have to give credit to uh, Noelle Stevenson for... And, and the rest of that crew, but especially Noelle Stevenson. Uh, she was the showrunner for that whole thing. She and uh, everyone on the cast, everyone in the crew, they constantly pushed the envelope for what they were allowed to do and made maybe the most comprehensive well done uh, representation wise for just just hitting all the LGBT community just all encompassing and I, I think they absolutely deserve uh, some, rec uh, some recognition for that because a lot of shows I think especially over the last decade uh, last seven years uh Shows have tried more and more and more and more to include this stuff and either through executive meddling or just poor handling of what's happening, uh, they fumble it somewhere. Like Legend of Korra, for example, um, they, you go back and watch that show, which you'll be able to because it's hitting Netflix on August 14th, I forgot to mention that earlier. Um, you go back and watch Legend of Korra, especially Book 4, they very clearly had it in their minds that they were going to do this thing with Korra and Asami. And then people went back and found these other hints here and there, but it's really obvious in Book 4 that that's what's going to happen. Um, and then you get one moment, and a big part of that was Nickelodeon not wanting them to do it. Uh, they had to fight just to get that one moment in. Um, and then you get a show like Steven Universe 
um, where they were very heavy on representing people um, to the point where I think canonically every gem is uh, is essentially non-binary. Uh, they just choose typically female presenting forms. Um, they they got a couple moments here and there. Like Garnet is a big deal because Garnet Garnet's two parts, Ruby and Sapphire, are I think the first on-screen lesbian couple I can think of um, where like where it is the whole series. This is what this is. Like yeah, you get the reveal at the end of season one. Uh, that Garnet is made up of two parts and that those two parts are in love with each other. But it does not shy away from it. But it can, it still can only do so much about it where they get the one and then they get uh, the the implied stuff. Uh, it's, like, it's not exactly implied. Uh, but the stuff with Rose and uh, Pearl, but you don't get to see a lot of that. She-Ra... As soon as they got the green light for uh, to just do what they wanted to do, they went they went all the way with it. Where I think, and I have to double check this, or somebody can like tweet me about it. Um, Shira, I think <laughs> there are only like three three head couples in the whole show. Like I, I think that um, I think that the number of gay relationships in the show outnumbers the straight ones. Where I think the straight ones are like uh, the straight ones. I would say it's like Bo and Glimmer, um, and uh, I will not say the other one because uh, it's kind of a spoiler if you haven't seen the show. Um, and I kind of want to avoid that because it is a, a, a big deal. Um, I want to say it's two and then three because there's one in the past. But then there's like Bo's parents. Um, there's obviously the one that you can't avoid. And if you've been on the internet at any point in the last two years, you know um, Catra and Adora. Um there's like background like that's the other thing is there's just background characters who get very like they kind of become more important over the time over the show but they're there and they're married and they're just there they're present and i feel like i want to uh, i want to find the right way to put this i feel like a lot of times in shows like this or in just fiction in the quest for representation we kind of force it to be okay it has to be this one that's important and while I think it is super important to have like canon representation in your main cast I think having it in your secondary cast is also super important I think that your background characters being people is important and furthermore I think that your background characters being representative of marginalized groups is important. Um, like, as a black person, I think about this a lot, where 
man, I just want stories where your black people are just people. Like, I want super simple domestic, like, I want a bunch of slice of life shows uh, with black people. I want a bunch of slice of life shows with, uh, with gay people. I want, I want groups that are not just white straight people to have fiction where they're just allowed to not do anything important, if that makes sense. Like, I, I want just characters to just be people who are also part of these groups, if that makes sense. Uh, I'm, I feel like I'm explaining that really poorly. Um, like, there, there are people who've said this better than I'm saying it right now. Yeah, it's great when you make the story about, like, the struggle of being part of these groups because people in those groups, we can see ourselves. Um, but it's also important to just let us be people. <laughs> and I say us as a marginalized person. I am a black man. Um, but also, like, you know... I want a I want a sitcom where there's just trans characters just hanging out, and it's not all about the pain of being in the world and being yourself and uh, as a member of a marginalized group. I want representation that is just I want representation that is presented as normal as straight white people are presented. If that makes sense. And Shira absolutely hits that on the head. Like, yes, everyone is doing something special because that's the world they're in. But, like, for example, Bo, uh, who is black, he is one of the only characters who doesn't have, like, magic powers or anything. He's he's just a dude. <laughs> he His job is that he's an archer and that he knows a lot about tech, but he doesn't know as much about it as, say, Entrapta does. He is fundamentally just a guy, and that's great. It's so great to just see that as a character. And he has his own insecurities and his own issues and all these things, but they don't define him. He is, he is defined mostly... He's defined primarily by two things. One, being the heart of his friend group being the heart of the rebellion because he is he is that guy but also he's defined by uh never wearing the lower part of a shirt <laughs> like he it's not like oh this is Bo and he's black and he's miserable because he's black like Bo is black and he's a dude and I love him he's my favorite uh he also has a superpower that is appearing to be in love with whoever he is standing on screen next to. And that's rad. Uh, Shira, as a show, like just as a show, as someone who has zero attachment to the original, like I have like the most tenuous at best remembrance that it is attached to He Man. And He Man, I had like a, a little bit of an exposure to as a kid because uh, I want to say they relaunched it in like 2000, 2002. Um, they 
knocked it out of the park. Like, it is so well thought out and incredibly well developed. Uh, It's got a great story that runs the entire show. It's got a switch in who your villain is while still maintaining what's happening in the show. And it still is primarily just like taking the characters from the original and updating them and making them unique because like I just looked it up after I finished it like what were these characters like 30 years ago and they stunk (laughs) it it was that point in time where every character on TV uh, especially developed by uh, by the toy companies they were all the same character they all looked the same like If I had never seen He-Man or She-Ra and then suddenly saw a picture of Man-in-Arms and the original bow, I would think they're the same character. Because every character in these shows are the same. Like Adora and um, Angela look like the same person in the original. And now they are these very clearly defined people. They They all have their own distinct personalities, their own little gimmicks, their own things about them and it makes it so much better as a show it makes the world so much more lifelike and real and engaging and it just it's a better show than it could have ever hoped to have been 30 years ago and deserves all the praise in the world uh, for how well done it is last thing I want to talk about before we get into the news is um, I decided to start replaying Mafia 3 I love that game. <laughs> like, it's... As far as games this generation goes, it doesn't particularly stand out on, like, an aesthetic level. Uh, you know, there are a ton of just big open-world games, and I think any game, the style that it is, which is that GTA style, uh, it is overshadowed by the fact that GTA Five has been present the entirety of the 8th generation and is going on into the ninth. Uh, and it's hard for games to to get from underneath that. Uh, but I think, as far as games in that style go, I say as somebody who's beaten GTA Five what twice, three times now. Um, I think that the best two games in that style, in that genre, uh, the last generation, last two generations, really. Um, uh, our one Resident Redemption one I think is incredible, but Sleeping Dogs and Mafia Three are just take the cake for me I think. And Mafia Three, I guess it's been really present on my mind uh, because of people talking about The Last of Us Two. I still haven't played The Last of Us Two, but from what people are saying about it, it's a game about revenge. That's what I can tell. And it's about revenge and about how re- revenge is harmful and. It's basically, do not fight with monsters let ye be, uh, lest you become a monster yourself. Mafia 3 says, fuck all that. You know what's sick? Fucking vengeance. Mafia 3 is a 30-hour re- revenge quest, and it's sick because it knows that it's that. And it it's basking in that. It is wallowing in the fact that it is a game about revenge. Uh, it It asks the bold question of, 
hey, kid, do you want to shoot a bunch of racists who shot your dad? And the answer is, yes, absolutely I want to do that. Why would I not want to do that? Lincoln Clay, again, uh, about representation. Lincoln Clay is one of the only black protagonists I can think of the last generation. Still, you know, we've been doing this thing with video games for decades now. Generations. And it's still very few protagonists in video games who are not Nathan Drake. Um, and so you, you look at the last 10 years in video games. Off the top of my head, games I can think of that have black protagonists. It's Mafia 3. Uh, GTA 5 has one of their three protagonists is a is a black man. Um, like off the top of my head, that's really it. The last generation. Um, oh, Watch Dogs 2, which has that character that's just me, and it's very weird. Um, like he looks like me. We have the same name. It's super weird. Um, and for its salt, uh, Lincoln Clay is really well done. Lincoln Clay is a really good character because he knows what he's doing morally as well. But he is so, so fueled by vengeance. He's so angry that he won't be satisfied until he has destroyed everything that that family has built. Uh, the Marcanos. He, he won't be happy. He won't be satisfied. He won't be able to rest until he has destroyed everything that Sal Marcano has built. And he doesn't care who he has to go through to do that. And the thing about Lincoln is that he didn't want to be in this position in the first place. He came home from Vietnam and he wants to live a normal life. Like, he's hanging around for a little bit to help Samuel, you know, help his adoptive father. And then he's supposed to be hitting the road, going to California to try to get a job. He doesn't want to be here. He doesn't want to do this. And then the, Mar the Marcanos basically forced his hand. Uh, and a lot of games try to handle racism in a way that this game doesn't. Uh, and by that I mean Mafia 3 doesn't pull any punches about the fact that the Dixie Mafia are an analog for like the KKK. Uh, it doesn't pull any punches about the fact that you're going to go shoot up some clanmen. That's That was a selling point. <laughs> that was all, like that should have been on the box. It was like, by the way, there's a mission in this game where you shoot up the clan. Um, it's, it's so... It handles what it's tackling uh, in a really great way. Um, like, it doesn't... There's nothing mechanically that Mafia 3 does that puts it over games like GTA. Um, it, it for, for what it is, it is a third-person cover-based shooter uh, with some pretty good melee combat. Uh, mechanically, the whole generation has been games like this. But none have... And I guess it's for me because of my experience as a black person, as a black man. Um, 
I think that it taking it taking on what it's taking on and doing it as well as it does and not pull and not the game isn't trying to teach you a lesson um and not that I think that trying to teach a lesson through your game is a bad thing I think that it done well it it's a, a great medium for that video games are um but it isn't telling you what you're doing. Oh, the thing that you're doing because we told you to do it is wrong. Like other characters will comment on it. Like Father uh, Father James will be like, "When is it going to be enough, Lincoln?" And Lincoln will say, "Like I'll tell you when it's enough." Uh, Lincoln Clay's purpose is to be a badass action man, and it's so refreshing for a game to. I know this is the exact opposite of what I just said about She-Ra, but it doesn't shy away from the fact that it's a video game. And it doesn't... It's so refreshing for a video game to A, have a black protagonist, and B, let that black protagonist just be fucking cool. Because Lincoln is cool. <laughs> Unless you ask Nikki, who will say that he's a big fucking nerd. Um, but like, ten minutes into Mafia 3... You smash a racist head into a furnace, and it's fucking dope. Like, the game doesn't... The game is just asking the bold question of, Hey, what can you do with a racist and the environment? Uh, it, it's like the uh, the Wolfenstein, the new Colossus thing, where uh, Pete Hines said, You can do a lot of things with a Nazi and a hatchet. Uh, you can do a lot of things with... Uh, some dudes flying confederate flags and a pistol and just shout out to Mafia 3 for just being a really enjoyable game that knows what it is and I feel like nowadays games have gotten particularly western games have gotten so caught up in the idea of trying to be a movie trying to be art that they have forgotten why we started playing video games. And that's because they're fun. And yes, there's something to be said for a video game that is not fun because it's trying to teach you something with it. Uh, like Actual Sunlight is a great example of this. Actual Sunlight is a game made in RPG Maker uh, where you do no RPG combat uh, because it is essentially a visual novel. Um, and it's not fun. It is not enjoyable. I played that game three, four years ago because it was free on the Vita. Um, and it stuck with me. But it didn't stick with me because it was fun. It stuck with me because it was a game about depression. And about the things that depression does to your mind. Uh, I have not touched that game again. I think I might have uninstalled it off my Vita. I don't ever want to go back and play that game again. But a game like Mafia 3, a game like Doom, a game like Dragon Age, a game like Yakuza, games that are just just fucking video games. Like, a, this is a video game-ass video game. I think are really special, <laughs> to me personally. I find a lot of enjoyment in games that are just trying to be games. Where it's like, hey man, you got an hour to kill? Yeah, come play this. Come play a couple missions. 
And as I say this, I realize that just mission-based, level-based video games have kind of gone away in place of, like, open-world stuff. Um, in place of games like... Like, it's the David Cage problem. I think that was kind of the apex of this, or the, the genesis of this, was after Heavy Rain came out. Not so much uh, Fahrenheit, Indigo Prophecy. Um, but after Heavy Rain, uh, game devs got so into the idea of video games as art. Of, I could make this into a movie. And for his credit, Hideo Kojima has been trying to do that since Metal Gear Solid 1. But MGS kind of gets a pass, at least to me, because so much of the game is still driven by the gameplay. There's so much creativity into the game itself and making the game fun. Like, MGS 3 is basically a Bond movie, but you fight a tank on rockets, and it's sick. Like, it's... No shade to The Last of Us 2, no shade to anybody who likes The Last of Us 2. I think that uh, the team in Naughty Dog makes great stuff. I think that visually that game... Like, I, I loved the first Last of Us. I love Last of Us 1. Um, I think as we roll into the next generation with the PS5 and Xbox Series X, I think that we have to get back to basics with video games. I think that we have to get back to a point uh, where video games are video games <laughs> I want to I'm playing this video game because I want to have a good time and I think there is a place for video games as quote unquote high art but man let your video games be fun So let's get into the news. Uh, first things first, maybe the the most important story in terms of just world stuff, stuff in this country um, as it pertains to sports, as it pertains to just everything, kind of, when you look at the grand scope of this thing. Uh, the Washington football team, uh, after pressure from FedEx, from Pepsi, from Nike, from the NFL itself, after decades of people telling them to change the name, after eight years ago, Dan Snyder, the owner of the team, said that he would never, all caps, NEVER change the name of the team. They are changing the name of the team uh, from a literal racial slur to something else. We're still unclear on what it is, but they plan on doing it before the 2020 season starts, which is interesting because the NFL seems on track to start in September, October, like they usually do. Um, the NBA uh, is restarting as we speak. Like, as I record this, um, like the NBA basketball is going on right now uh, for the first time in four months since Rudy Gobert tested positive. Um, uh, no players have tested positive, which is uh, a good thing. But the NBA is back. Baseball is back. Hockey should be back, I think, uh, next week um, or the, the beginning of August. Ha 
football is supposed to come back when it usually starts and do its full normal season, which I think might be a mistake. Uh, might definitely be a mistake, but we'll see when we get to it, I guess. Uh, but the Washington team is planning on changing their name, changing their logo, changing all their iconography uh, before September. Uh, which is going to be interesting to see how that plays out, if they've already got stuff in the works, um, if they're going to uh, go with any like existing like fan mock-ups or anything like that, base it off of something. But they're changing the name, finally. Um, and uh, they're not the only ones doing that. Um, the Atlanta Braves are looking at not changing the name, keeping the name, but uh, getting rid of the Tomahawk Chop, Getting rid of some of that uh, that Native American iconography that is so prevalent with their stuff, and they, I think the Braves will have an easier time doing it uh, than other uh, than other teams will, uh, because the Braves they have very little in their in what it is like they've got on one jersey they've got like a tomahawk on it they can just take that off. Uh, the other jersey, their better jersey, has a big feather on the sleeve, and they just take that off. They'll be good to go. Uh, the Cleveland Indians, uh, I think, are looking at uh, at getting um, at changing their name. I know they've been phasing out Chief Wahoo over the last few years, uh, but they look. Like they're next up on the block, uh, the Edmonton football team and the CFL, um, they have had a name that is insult uh, that is essentially a slur against Inuit people, uh, and they're changing their name. Uh, the Chicago Blackhawks, I don't. So the Blackhawks are a weird one, in that oh boy. Okay, sorry. There's a there's a truck outside, and uh, I, I got worried that it was picking up on the mic. Um, the Chicago Blackhawks are a weird one in that I think their name is fine, but Chief Blackhawk has to go. Uh, so like even if they're just changing, like getting the tomahawks off of the off of the jerseys out of the logos, and just taking Chief Blackhawk himself off of there, and they they could keep the name Blackhawks and they could just shorten it to the Hawks because a lot of people. Uh, in Chicago, a lot of people that are fans of that team just call them the Hawks anyway. Uh, they could just call themselves the Hawks and have a literal Black Hawk as their new logo. I think uh, somebody pitched that idea years ago. Um, but all these, all, it's all got to go. It's all got to go. Um, and predictably, people are a certain group of people, certain groups, I guess I should say, are very upset about this. Um, yesterday, Edmonton announced their name change upcoming, and people were very pissed at them about it because how dare you change the the tradition? My daddy rooted for this team when they were called this, and I'm gonna keep calling them this. I'm gonna show up wearing the jersey for the old team. It's like, <laughs> man, that can't be that important to you. Like it, it can't. There's no way that that is important to you. Like fundamentally. What do you lose by... What do you lose if they change the name? I, I cannot think of anything that affects my life less than the name of a sports team I like. 
Like, uh, there was a whole thing, I want to say two years ago, where the Golden Knights had a weird, um, had a weird legal dispute with the U.S. Army over the name. Um, and look, if they had to, had to change the name, it had been fine. It's not going to affect me if they have to drop Golden from their name and just be the Las Vegas Knights. It's fine. It doesn't, it's, it's whatever. If Mark Davis woke up tomorrow and decided, you know, I think we're going to change the, the Raider name. It'd be a little weird, but like, okay, doesn't, it's not going to break my heart. It's not the end of the world if a sports team changes their name. And look, if your biggest problem in your life, especially right now, especially right now, if your biggest problem is that a sports team is going to change their name because they don't want to be cruel, because that's what it is. It's not insensitive. It is cruel. Dan Snyder and his predecessor choosing that as the name, refusing to change it after people tell them not to. That is not insensitive. That is not uh, just trying to stay true to tradition. It is cruel. It's cruel. There's no point to it other than cruelty. There's none. It's not. There's. It's pointless. Otherwise, it is simply to be cruel. There's, there's no other reason for it. So a team looking up and realizing this is cruel that we are doing this to these people. We're not, like, and that, that's the argument is always, well, they're honoring them. It's like, well, the people that you're saying that you're honoring are telling you that it's not honoring them. You don't get to tell them that you are. Like, if, let's say, let's pick a team out of a hat. Let's say the Phoenix Suns uh, decided that their na new name was going to be the Phoenix Jigaboos. The Phoenix Mammies. Like, and, and black people went, hey, what the fuck? The Phoenix Suns are not then allowed to tell them, well, we're just trying to honor you. You're not allowed to tell when someone, especially someone in a marginalized group, tells you that the thing that you are doing is offensive, you are not allowed to tell them that it's not. You're just not. That's not how that works. You don't get to be in charge of that. So Dan Snyder for the last decade plus saying, I'll never change the name, it's not offensive, and I don't care if you think it is, that's not him trying to honor tradition, that's him being a dickhead. And the problem is, when something has been going on for long enough, particularly in this country, I'll, I'll say particularly in North America, when something has been going on for years, particularly something that has been done by white people, when you ask for it to change, you are, to them, I guess, spitting in the face of their tradition. But your tradition is built on cruelty. So why should we let you honor it in the first place? And look, if they had just announced, oh, we're going to look into it, and nothing came of it, that would be worse. That would be worse than them never looking into it. And I'm glad that moving forward, they are 
going to change it, but they're not changing it from the bottom of their hearts. This isn't changing because Dan Snyder woke up one day and realized, oh man, this is really messed up. I, I can't do this. This is, people have been telling me for years I finally get it. Because he knows why people are mad. He's known the whole time why people are mad. He just hasn't cared enough to change it. And he wouldn't, if he had a say in the matter, he wouldn't be changing it at all. That team would continue to be a, a racial slur against Native American people. And we as a people would just have to live with that. Uh, to use the royal we there. Um, and what happened is because of the climate we're living in right now, FedEx, uh, who owns the naming rights to the stadium where Washington plays, they looked around and said, hey, we're not going to put our name, we're not going to sponsor this stadium, we're not going to give you any money uh, if you continue to have this name because it's shitty. Like, it sucks. And also... I just want to say the you're just supposed to be honoring the legacy of that team. That team has won like one title ever. What great winning legacy are you talking about? This isn't the fucking Patriots. <laughs> you're the team that always comes in third in the NFC North. Or not NFC North, uh NFC East. What fucking great legacy are you standing on? The legacy of Always being behind the Eagles and the Cowboys? Is that what you're talking about? The, your one title in 50 years? Your old owner being a dyed-in-the-wool piece of shit? Is that what you're talking about? Because, yo, if that's what we're talking about, then why are you a fan of this fucking team? Like, you are telling on yourself. This team is not changing their names out of the goodness of their heart. They're changing it because FedEx, because Nike, because the league themselves pressured them to change it. And when it starts fucking up the money, that's when these people start to care. When you go after these people's money, they have to listen. And that's what happened here. Dan Snyder, after a decade of people telling him, you need to change this name, you need to change this name, or sell the team, he and a refusal to do either one. When his pockets started getting a little light, when he realized that this season, if it even happens, is going to be a losing one, both on the field and in the checkbook, that's when he decided it needed to change. And he still threw Ron Rivera out there to be his shield. Because Dan Snyder doesn't care. To compare Dan Snyder to James Dolan would be shockingly disrespectful to James Dolan. <laughs> because people's reason for telling James Dolan to sell the team is that the Knicks are bad and he doesn't know how to run a basketball team. Dan Snyder is at best cruel. And it's good that this name is changing. It's good that these other names are changing. It's good that these teams are realizing, oh, what we're doing sucks. And actually, I want to rephrase that. Because they're not realizing that what they're doing sucks. They're realizing that what they're doing is going to fuck up their money. Because if it would just took a change of heart, a sudden realization that, oh, this is shitty, they would have done it decades ago. 
So Nintendo had a mini direct this week. Uh, people were very upset that they didn't show off any like new first party things, despite the fact that Nintendo said up front, this is a mini direct focusing on our third party partners, but that would require Nintendo fans to read. Uh, you know, these are the same people who got mad every time they didn't announce Animal Crossing, which they never said that they were working on. You know, like, I feel like people forget the year and a half we had of after the Switch was announced, people going, announce a new Animal Crossing, announce a new Animal Crossing, everything, about everything. And I think that might be part of where my just total, like, not interest in Animal Crossing, like, stems from is how goddamn rabid people were about that for ever before it was announced and then it was announced and then it was nothing but okay but when's Animal Crossing coming out release Animal Crossing early like do you guys remember earlier this year when this whole thing started the lockdown and everything no matter what like people were just yelling release Animal Crossing now release it now 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 like just total disregard for the supply lines and for how that would make how that would even work it's like i want to play animal Crossing. like relax people who play nintendo games actually let me back this up hardcore nintendo fans are the most entitled fans in video games uh in my opinion i think that nobody is more entitled than people who love nintendo games uh because it's never good enough no matter what, no matter what caveat they put on it, no matter what they say beforehand, it is never good enough. Um, but more important than any of this, uh, Shin Megami Tensei Five finally officially announced for 2021. That game has been in development so long. Just to put it in perspective, we found out that that game was in development when the Switch was announced. So that had been early 2017. In that time, Persona 5 has been released in America twice. Like, just to put that into perspective for you, Catherine was re-released in that time. Uh, like, Atlas was busy with other fires in the other irons in the fire uh, before SMT5. We saw a screenshot of SMT5. All we knew was that they, it exists. So that tells me that three years ago when they showed it off uh, that it was in the very early planning stages. It was very early. Like, concept art. You know, n nothing existed at that point in time when we found out they were working on it. Um, I'm glad it's coming out. Um, it's... SMTs are a really good game series and I feel like in a weird way, it's it's a weird situation where Persona, around the time Persona 4 came out, you combine the fact that there hadn't been a SMT game released on consoles in... When was SMT 3 released? When was Nocturne released? 2003, 2004? There hadn't been a, a mainline Shin Megami Tensei game uh, released in half a decade. And then Persona 3 comes out in 2006. Persona 4 comes out in 2009. And that's the time where Persona started to overtake SMT, despite the fact that Persona is the spinoff. Uh, and then SMT 4 came out. And SMT 4's biggest problem is that it was on the 3DS. 
Like, and and granted, at the time, I, I think the Wii U was out. So your options were play it on the Wii U or play it on the 3DS. Like, because I think they have some kind of exclusive deal with Nintendo where new SMT games come out on Nintendo platforms uh, and Persona games come out on PlayStation. There are weird exceptions here and there like Persona Q and um, uh, Persona 5S uh, is a um, it is on the Switch. Uh, but uh, in a weird way, SMT was dealt a really weird hand uh, in development and in being uh, produced by or being put out on Nintendo systems because SMT4 and SMT Apocalypse are really, really good games that are stuck on the 3DS. <laughs> like, it's a, it's Tokyo Mirage Sessions all over again. Where Tokyo Mirage Sessions, uh, the SMT Cross Fire Emblem game, that game is really good and it was locked to the Wii U. And eventually, like now it's out on the Switch and people are playing it and like, oh man, this game's good the whole time. Uh, while Persona had the benefit of being on the PlayStation and Persona overtook SMT. So now I think a new generation of people who otherwise wouldn't have played this game because of now because of the Persona Association and because of the fact that it's on a console that everyone has. It's on a console that is so popular that no one has been able to get a new one for like four months. I think that's a really big help for that game. Uh, it's just weird that it took us this long to see anything about it other than the fact that it exists. Um, also announced was SMT3 Nocturne, uh, an HD re-release on the PS4 and uh, Switch, uh, not featuring Dante from the Devil May Cry series. Um, so if you didn't know, uh, Shin Megami Tensei 3 is the origin of the uh, featuring Dante from the Devil May Cry series meme. Uh, because Dante, specifically DMC2 Dante, is a optional boss fight in um, in Nocturne. Uh, in the in a specific Japanese re-release of it that came out after Atlas didn't have the rights to use Dante anymore, um, he's replaced by Raido Kuzanoha. That version of the game is what this HD re-release is based on. So, uh, if you wanted Dante, sorry to tell you, uh, he is not in the game. Instead, play Raido Kuz uh, fight Raido Kuzanoha, who has the same moveset. Um, and honestly fits the theme better because he's a character from that universe. Um, but yeah, those are good games. Or SMT3 is a good game. SMT5 should be good because Atlas makes good games, especially good RPGs. That is what they do. Uh, Persona 5 Royal is probably my game of the year. And uh, when I get somebody on here to talk with me about it, uh, I will talk at length about how much I like that game. But for now, just know that Atlas makes good RPGs. And if you are looking for good RPGs to play, uh, especially on the Switch, SMT3 HD, Nocturne, and uh, SMT5, coming to you soon. They're, I expect that SMT5 will be really good. 
last piece of news before we get out of here for this week. Uh, want to talk really quick about this story that IGN posted uh, yesterday about Ubisoft, about their reported just lack of faith in female leads. Uh, multiple Assassin's Creed games reportedly scrapped or minimized female lead roles before release. Uh, basically, Ubisoft is just the leakiest boat right now. There's a ton of stuff coming out uh, about their higher-ups and about internal abuse and sexual abuse allegations and just sexism, just rampant being shitty people. Uh, but the one, the most recent piece of news really stands out to me. Um, so I want to say since, I was say the first time somebody asked Ubisoft directly about it. It was like E3 2013. Somebody asked them, hey, are we going to ever get an Assassin's Creed game with a female lead assassin? And the response at the time from Ubisoft was that women are too hard to animate. Um, and they got a ton of backlash for that. Uh, and rightfully so, I should say, because that's the dumbest defense. That's the dumbest reason, is women are too hard to animate. Because I think that was the same year that Tomb Raider came out. <laughs> and it was the same year that Tomb Raider came out. And Tomb Raider was outstanding. Uh, and not for nothing, there were plenty of games that generation, that late uh, 360 PS3 beginning of the PS4 Xbox One generation uh, that had that had female leads like Lollipop Chainsaw came out in 2012 uh, so the the it was such a bold faced lie of just like oh yeah uh, we would love to put women in our games and it's more obviously a bold faced lie now uh, that the story is out because essentially what it's saying is that uh, the most recent three Assassin's Creed games, Syndicate, uh, or I don't know if Syndicate was most recent, but Syndicate, Odyssey, and Origins, all games that uh, have a prominent female characters, originally had those characters a lot more prominent. Uh, originally, for Assassin's Creed Syndicate, the plan was for the script to be split evenly between Jacob and Evie. Uh, Despite the fact that Evie is a way more interesting character than Jacob, has a much better design and cooler weapon set, uh, they decided to weigh it heavier in Jacob's favor, where you spend more of the plot as Jacob and more of the game, more of the story is Jacob heavy. Despite the fact that, again, Evie is a more interesting character uh, and all that. Then you get to Assassin's Creed Origins, which uh, apparently originally... Um, Bayek was going to be incapacitated or killed in the early part of the game, and then his wife, uh, Ava, would, or Aya, uh, my mistake, would take over uh, as the protagonist. And then they decided, no, that's dumb, I guess, and made, instead, you play as Bayek, and Aya is just an important secondary character. And then, for the most recent one, Odyssey, originally, like I've thought for a long time that this was the plan, and it's, in a weird way, it's validating to know this was the, that it was true, uh, but at the same time, it's really disheartening. 
Um, originally, for Assassin's Creed Odyssey, uh, Cassandra was supposed to be the lone playable character. Um, and higher-ups specifically told them, uh, specifically Serge Hasekhet, uh I'm probably saying his name wrong, who cares? Um, he told them, no, make her optional. Uh, may give them the option uh, to play as um, as one of the other. And I think I said this on an earlier episode. Uh, that game really feels like that was the case. Where that story makes a lot more sense as Cassandra. It feels like it cut, there's more heart to it as Cassandra. And the way that story is written, you can tell, especially with the stuff with, uh, with Deimos, you can tell that it was always built around the idea of Cassandra being the main character. And this, the chief of marketing told them, no, uh, you got to be able to play as the guy too. And then all the marketing materials focus on Alexios instead of on Cassandra. Um, or like even the box art um, or the art that appears on that, the splash screen when you start it up, um, you are looking at Alexios from behind Cassandra. And that sucks. And it sucks that we are still, still in this place, or at least Ubisoft is, still in this place where you think that a game can't sell because it's got a girl in it. And it's, it's mind-blowing to me because has this person ever met Metroid fans? Right? Like, you play as Samus in every Metroid game and people fucking love Metroid. Like, if a new Castlevania came out tomorrow and you're playing as Trevor Belmont's great-great-granddaughter or some shit, people would fucking love that. Because if people like your game, they're gonna buy it regardless. And I'd be willing to, to, to say, and granted, I have no basis for this, uh, other than the fact that I know women and I know that women play video games. If you put more girls in your games, girls will buy your game. If you put more brown people in your games, brown people will buy... If, if you put more people in your games, or the option for more people in your games, more people will buy your games. The problem is that games, like every other industry, are still driven primarily by... Like, are still at the top, it's still white men. And they make things for themselves. They go, well, I wouldn't buy this if I couldn't play as a guy who looked like me. So make the main character a generic brown-haired white dude who we can call the everyman because he looks like every white man and we'll call it a day. And that sucks. I'm so tired of it. I'm so exhausted by it. Um, but how many games have character creators where you have an option to play as a girl? How many games have an option where you can play as a female character and uh, and she's not overly sexualized, at least in comparison to the male characters? Because off the top of my head, I can think of like the Souls series and Bloodborne, and that's it. Where, uh, uh, no, um, uh, Fallout. And that even then, that's kind of iffy, because uh, some of the uh, some of the items 
um, still make so over sexualize your character. Oh, and Mass Effect and Dragon Age, obviously. That's about it, you know, and it sucks that we're still in this place where women can't play a character that looks like them because we can't we can't risk white guys not liking our thing because apparently they're the only people who buy these things according to these developers according to these publishers actually I'm not even going to say developers because the developers in this case specifically the case of Ubisoft the developers pushed and pushed and pushed on them and still didn't still had to compromise for these this pretty basic thing it's publishers it's marketing guys who are so afraid of white dudes not getting to see more of themselves because it's bad for women in this it's especially worse for women of color because the amount of games where you play as a female character who is black, who is Asian, who is Hispanic, it's very low. It's even lower than the first group. Like, it's such a microcosm. Like, I can't think of any off the top of my head where by default you play as that. Um, I, I can think of a few that have good character creators for that. Like, Monster Hunter is great for that. Um, but that's... It's so low, and it's so absurd to me, still, that that's where we are with this stuff. And hopefully, um, if anything, hopefully people learn from from this story about Ubisoft. Hopefully, people look at this and go, "Okay, well, we can't do that, and we have to let we have to open up this spectrum." We have to open up our ideas for our main characters. Otherwise, we're going to be in the same place forever. Like, I feel like it's... We're in a post-Life is Strange world. And Life is Strange, uh, for all of its faults, part of the reason Life is Strange was so popular was because you played as a young, decidedly not heterosexual girl. And that resonated with a lot of people. Like, a lot of the people that I know who played it really liked that game for a, for that reason, among others. Like, it's a good game on its own. It has its problems. But part of the thing that attracted a lot of the fan base of that game was you were playing as a woman who likes women. And it is bonkers to me that marketing guys still don't see that. And we're still doing the Nathan Drake thing. Still. Anyway, that's our show. A um, little longer than the last couple. Uh, I am going to try my damnedest to stick to this. Um, Wednesday, Thursday, uh, every week release. Um, if you like the show, keep me honest. And, uh, and bug me about it if I start to miss because um, that'll motivate me to keep doing this uh, 
If you want to follow me on Twitter, that's Archer Arios, A-R-X-H-E-R-A-R-I-O-S. Uh, the X is a C. Please do not make me explain it. Um, and I'll be back here by the grace of God next week. Um, until then, take care, stay safe, uh, and uh, be good to each other. Have a good one.